There was a point in my life when I was ruled by my food rules. I know it sounds a little obsessive, but it's true. I had become so obsessed with being healthy and fit that it actually bordered on being very unhealthy. At first it started out pretty subtle and seemed harmless, but there was a point that I remembered being so afraid to eat anything that wasn't super clean. How have you viewed food and exercise over the course of your lifetime? As you just heard from today's guest on Dr. D's Social Network, Alicia Carlson, she struggled with it. And so have so many people throughout the course of their lifetimes. Alicia's done a great job of overcoming that and continuing to speak about it and provide a very positive turnaround and how we can all have a better relationship with how we exercise and how we view food. In the intermission, you'll also hear a little bit more from Alicia. But I hope that you enjoy our conversation as we discuss a myriad of topics within fitness and food. Ladies and gentlemen, Alicia Carlson. Thanks, Darian, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, uh, we got a chance to chat a little bit off here, which was very pleasant, by the way. I enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. It's always nice, I think, when you meet somebody online and you're actually able to connect with them on a couple different levels. You know, you never know what you're going to get, right? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like a box of chocolates. That was a setup for Forrest Gump. Okay. (laughs) I just did. I walked right into it. <laughs> you did. You, I threw you a softball and, you know, a trap and you fell into it, you know. <laughs> but uh, you never know what you're going to get with people. And I definitely never know, which is why a lot of times now I like to talk to people ahead of time because you just never know. You know, it's how somebody presents themselves maybe on a profile is very different than how they actually sound when you talk to them. Yeah. No, that's that's for sure. I think the internet um, has kind of lent itself to all of us sort of creating a um, alter ego if we're not careful. I like the word. I like that alter ego uh, comment about it. I, I've had several comments about that with people related to, you know, what is your kind of personal projection when you're online, and does that match up? with the person that you want people to know about or that people who know you, is that the same person, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. It's hard to tell. I mean, unless you really know somebody, but I think it's, it's definitely people can sometimes have more courage to put out maybe their true selves or maybe this personal myth about themselves as well with that. Mm-hmm. So it just depends. I think that you kind of get both maybe. I think in some ways there's definitely the courage of hiding behind a screen if you are wanting to be sort of negative or beat up on somebody else. Um, You know, I definitely don't think that a lot of people that kind of troll the internet, that they would have that same kind of courage if given the opportunity to speak their mind to somebody (laughs) face to face. Uh, But I also think that one of the beautiful things about the internet and this idea of creating an alter ego is that for a lot of people in their real lives, maybe they haven't yet found the courage to start expressing themselves like as they feel like they truly are on the inside. And so 
having an online presence can definitely be kind of a gateway for building up that courage or kind of getting to know maybe um, yeah, who you really so. are rather agree. than just yeah. kind of always living into everybody else's expectations for you. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell me a little bit about your experience kind of growing into yourself throughout the years, you know, where you come from and have your experience growing up and coming into adulthood. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, uh, my experience growing up is actually a little bit messy. Um, I come from a family of alcoholism. Uh, there was some domestic abuse between my parents. Um, there was definitely a stint in my earlier childhood years, like in elementary school, where I deliberately remember being home alone with my brother at night while my parents went out. And uh, definitely all of those experiences have shaped me. And then kind of coming into middle school and high school, not ironically, you know, given the kind of household that I grew up in, I found myself kind of experimenting with that same sort of party lifestyle. And um, at the time, my parents had already divorced. They divorced when I was in fifth grade. Um, my mom kind of left and she left with her boyfriend at the time. And she went on to have a couple more kids. And I know that for myself and for my brother, I think we both really kind of struggled with this feeling of abandonment. And so I think too, that those feelings kind of followed me into high school and really probably even throughout my 20s of trying to fill that void of not feeling wanted, you know, by the one person maybe in the world that should want you above anybody else. And uh, that was really hard. And I think that kind of searching for that sense of belonging really led me down the road to kind of seek that belonging in the wrong ways or in ways that were unhealthy. Uh, nevertheless, I'm super grateful for all the, the botched, you know, ways of trying to belong somewhere, because I think that that has helped kind of shape me into who I am and has really given me just this perspective of finding a sense of belonging, like within yourself so that you're not really seeking that externally. Well, it makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. Um, where do you, how do you see yourself now and where do you want to see yourself as you continue to progress? Oh gosh. How do I see myself now? Uh, I would definitely say, so I've been kind of on a deliberate and intentional personal growth journey for the past four years. Um, I would say though, maybe the first couple of years, I really was just kind of going through the motions of personal growth. Uh, so, you know, reading, what does the that mean? Or like what you, yeah. Watching the videos or, you know, taking the courses or, you know, doing the things on the outside. But when I kind of stopped to reflect, I noticed that there wasn't a whole lot that had changed about me in terms of like what I actually believed and my mindset. Uh, so it was a very kind of outside in approach to personal growth and development. But then really, you know, after I think kind of spending that time reflecting and seeing that even though I was, quote unquote, doing the reps, so to speak, by reading the books or listening yeah. to the podcast, I wasn't seeing the results. Uh, that was a huge wake up call. And I really decided kind of from that moment on that uh, 
I didn't want to just go through the motions. And so really these last two years have been uh, tremendous growing opportunities and have really, I think, kind of aligned me to this greater vision that's outside of myself and what I truly believe is, you know, kind of the calling that we all are searching for. What is that calling you think that we're all searching for? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, like my calling isn't the same as yours, right? But I think that deep down inside, we all kind of know that there's something that we were meant for. There's something that we were created for. And I think that really often people just kind of, you know, they're going through the motions of their life. They're doing the things that they think that they should be doing. But for a lot of folks, it feels unaligned. It feels like there's something that's kind of always off. And, you know, not saying that like once you do finally kind of discover your calling, if you do, that you're never going to be fighting fighting those feelings of not feeling content or whatever. But um, I think that the more you get to know yourself, the more you start to trust yourself enough to lean into kind of that inner wisdom that you have that's been trying to lead you all along. Why do you think that, well, let me back up because I had this exact conversation like two days ago with my wife. And just because I speak to so many people on my podcast, you know, in hundreds of episodes, like just hearing a lot of things and, you know, that sense of calling. I, I also, I believe that every person has some level of calling mm-hmm. and that in many ways we deny it or we don't move towards the thing that keeps pulling us decade after decade with that. What's stopping us from following that in many ways? Oh, uh, I think fear. I mean, that's the first thing that kind of comes to my mind. And fear can be so many different ways. Like it can have so many different faces. Uh, For example, perfectionism. So the the fear of not doing it perfectly the first time or the fear of failure. Um, The fear, you know, comparisonitis is another face of fear. So looking at what everybody else is doing and kind of comparing yourself to how either you do or you don't measure up. Um, So I, you know, I think deep down inside the root cause is fear. Uh, So then you just kind of have to take a look at it and you know, see like how is fear maybe presenting itself in my life? What is the face of fear for you or that has been in your life? Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, uh, there were six faces of fear that were presented to me at a conference a couple months ago. And I'm going to see if I can remember them. So it was perfectionism, comparisonitis, unhealthy competition. Uh, Those are the three that stick out to me. And I would say that those are the three that I have really struggled with the most is um, perfectionism unhealthy competition and comparisonitis. So comparing myself to other people um, and either trying to see, you know, like how am I better than them or how am I worse than them? Um, and then just having a really unhealthy, uh, unhealthy relationship with competition. Talk about that a little bit more, the unhealthy relationship with competition, because um, I mean, I think I understand it on some level, but I think maybe some people in the audience, they, who may never really have competed in a lot of things or had that mindset, take us down that road a little bit. Yeah. So I think, you know, competition in and of itself is a good thing, right? Because generally speaking, it kind of pushes you to 
work a little bit harder or to come out of your comfort zone a little bit, right? And generally, we're going to be competing with other people um, on some level. And that's just really is kind of part of the natural systems of the world is there's always this level of competition, you know, when you're looking at grades or you're looking at your time and just kind of how you measure up against other people that are kind of going after the same things as you. I think that it gets to be unhealthy when, um, you know, you really are, are looking at like, well, how do I be the best? Or if you have that sense of that, you have to be the best at something, or you have to be the the first all the time, that automatically means that somebody else has to lose. And I think in that, when we frame it that way, that really starts to lend itself to kind of some unhealthy and negative thought patterns, because I think in a perfect world, we would all kind of be running our own race. We would all be just focused on finishing our own race and and running across that line, knowing that we ran that well. Um, But when we're in really that unhealthy place and we're competing with other people and we're trying to run maybe the race that's been set before them, we're not able to run our race well. And if we're trying to do something that wasn't really meant for us, but we think that it was, we're not going to be able to succeed or do that well either. So I think it's just kind of looking at, you know, again, what's driving that. And if you find yourself kind of constantly competing with other people or feeling like you have to be number one or you have to be the best at what you do, it's worthwhile to do some digging and some reflection. And I guarantee to you that if you are feeling that way, if you feel like you have to hustle it, you have to grind it to be on top, uh, it's fear that's driving that, right? It's scarcity. It's feeling like if you're not number one, you're, you're last. I think that's a cheesy movie quote or something like that. I can't stand that quote. I can't stand it. (laughs) It's so stupid. I'm like, like, there's no in between, like, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think as if you're looking at running, if you don't have your blinders on and you're kind of looking at what everybody else is doing, then I think that it's really easy to fall into that mindset. And when you look out on social media or whatever, it's like, it seems like everybody's doing, you know, everybody's number one. Um, but I don't think that's the reality. I think you just need to put your blinders on. You need to focus on what is the race that you're called to run and then run that well. Well, it's interesting. I kind of hung on to what you said, you know, maybe you're doing something you weren't meant to do. That is so powerful. Talk a little bit about that. Maybe let's dive a little bit further into that. I mean, is that related to the calling part or just explain a little bit further? Because I think that probably is very meaningful. Yeah, I, I think it does definitely tie back to that internal calling or that tugging that you feel. Uh, really recently, it's kind of been presented to me to take a look at who you were as a kid. You know, what were the things that you enjoyed doing as a kid? What did you kind of find yourself always involved in or what do you feel like you did really well as a child or you know like were you in plays or were you kind of always bossing people around or whatever I think there's so much uh, wisdom and insight that can be gleaned if we look at who we were as kids before we really were shaped by experiences and kind of the world telling us how we should be and so I think you know if you're kind of curious about what your calling might be or what it is that you maybe were put on this earth to do go back in time and really kind of remember who you were as a kid. And that could definitely be some good insight. 
and then kind of, you know, traveling through out your life to where you are now, do you notice common themes? Do you notice kind of this common thread that's been woven through your life? Like, have you always been a helper? Have you always been a listener? Have you, um, you know, always in some way like to organize and kind of lead and things like that? And um, that really, I think, is great to be able to take a look at that and then, you know, ask yourself, okay, what are some things that I maybe enjoy doing now and how can I tie that in? And I think that that really will help kind of guide you in that direction of what it is that maybe you were meant to do. Well, tell us about yourself. How were you as a child um, (laughs) related to that? Uh, Well, so I've actually been doing some reflecting on this this week uh, per a mentor's suggestion. And when I think about myself, you know, between maybe eight and 12 years old or something like that. I was a performer. I always loved kind of being center of attention, performing. Um, I remember having one of those huge video cameras that was my parents and we had it, I would set it up in our living room and, and set up kind of this fake news desk and present the news. Or I think at the time I was trying to present like entertainment tonight or something like my version of it. (laughs) Um, I was, you know, always signing up for plays for the classroom, um, definitely was among one of the bossier kids. So, you know, at the time, I think that bossing people around, and I still think bossing people around isn't a great way to lead, but I think that it, it does kind of demonstrate that you have that inherent desire to kind of bring people under order and get everybody, you know, kind of mobilized for a common, a common mission, Um, so it's been really fun to kind of look at where I'm at now with, you know, creating videos or podcasts or different content, you know, that definitely honors kind of that presenter and performer side of me. Um, and then, you know, looking for ways that I can kind of lead in my community or lead in my industry, um, that definitely kind of honors that, that leader, you know, from when I was a kid. Actually, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's a good exercise to go back and think about that. You know, I have a uh, an eight-year-old daughter, and she definitely has this very big performer gene and kind of this big personality. And um, she's like, I want to start my own podcast just like you. I love talking and stuff. I'm like, well, okay, we're going to maybe wait a little bit on that, <laughs> you know. But sometimes I involve her in on some of the intros to the podcast. She just lights up and things. And and I think, man, how do I, how do I man, how do I help nurture that in her um, as she grows? Clearly, she's into it, and so it's interesting that you're looking back uh, on it that way. So, tell me a little bit about kind of currently what you're doing and how you're helping others with that. Yeah. So, a part of my story that I didn't really share in the first part of the podcast is. I think because of some of the things that I walked through as a kid and kind of being bounced around to different houses and different relatives and things like that, um, I really struggled a lot with self-image and body image in particular. I grew up in a family that really prized kind of beauty and the thin ideal uh, for women's bodies. And there wasn't any shortness of conversation or lack of conversation around people expressing their opinions of another, you know, somebody else's body of how it could be changed or fixed or smaller or skinnier or whatever. And so 
again, you know, that was definitely something that really formed, I think, my opinion about myself and what I should look like. But also, again, you know, kind of looking at comparing yourself against other women. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's something that our culture still does a lot of. Um, so when I look back at kind of my personal experience and what I'm doing now, it, it definitely feels like all of that was training ground for the kind of work that I get to do with women, uh, coaching around nutrition and exercise, uh, but really doing a lot of work on the mindset kind of first and foremost, and, um, you know, looking at healing, helping women heal their relationships with food, with their body, um, and even with exercise. So, um, that's kind of is what I get to do now. I'm a non-diet lifestyle coach. And so I, I feel like I really do draw on a lot of my personal experience, uh, struggling through feeling good in my body, regardless of what it looks like, because I've been, you know, kind of on the quote unquote heavier end, um, and unhappy with what I saw in the mirror. And I've also been in, figure competition. So, you know, we're talking nine, 10% body fat, um, the leanest, the, you know, quote unquote fittest that I've ever been and still felt like that wasn't enough. So, um, very thankful for the entire journey and where it's led me and that it's just given me such a wide variety of experiences to draw on, to be able to relate to different women uh, around their body image and how they can really be healthy kind of from the inside out. So what do you think is, well, I want to chop it up a little bit about exercise and how you feel women view exercise in today's culture. Oh, yes. I, I think that there is kind of a, a wide variety, probably. It's interesting. I actually just did a video about this, um, this morning that I'll be releasing in the next couple of weeks. But, um, I think that in our culture, when I look out at kind of the fitness industry, we tend to really, and this isn't just for the fitness industry, but because that's kind of the industry that you and I are both in. And that's what you had asked about. I'm going to point it directly toward that. I think, when we look at the health and wellness industry and fitness as a whole right now, there really is kind of this, this hashtag no excuses mentality and, you know, really encouraging, I think, intense self-discipline and restriction around food and, and around monitoring your calories and um, almost being just too concerned with health, so to speak, or fitness or, or whatever, because in my mind, what I, the messaging that I see is that it all comes down to what you look like. It, it's very rarely less about the daily decisions that you're making. And it's more about fitness looks a very certain way. Um, and so I think that as women, we just kind of have this idea of like, I, I need to look this way, or I need to strive to look this way, or where we covet kind of this, the woman who is incredibly disciplined, incredibly focused on her fitness or whatever, but all the while you don't have any idea if she's struggling, you know, you don't know if she's actually fighting and intense disordered eating habits, um, even borderline eating disorder habits. So I think that looks can be very deceiving, you know, when we're talking about uh, what healthy looks like or what fitness looks like. 
It's such an interesting, uh, and well said, by the way, I, I have a very similar feeling. Um, I have a weird kind of thing with that just because, I mean, I've been in the business a long time, but before I was formally in the fitness and wellness business, I was a, a collegiate athlete and track and field. And I remember in that environment, so hyper-competitive, we're all on scholarships, we're competing. But I remember like we never looked at like our bodies in the sense of like, oh, this is how we looked and we're going to be so strict and we're going to eat well. It was like a lot of really incredibly fit people who didn't think about it that way, who were like, it was competing. You know, it was like, well, we have to do this to compete and be able to run and perform well. But it wasn't like there was this huge emphasis and restriction on the type of things in order to do that. It was just kind of like a byproduct. Now, I was a little more into it because it was my educational background was, you know, was in kinesiology. And, and so I was kind of getting hip to it. But it's funny when I see people who are uh, male or female, very restrictive, overly monitoring their exercise and things like that. In my mind, I'm like, man, I've been through that. I don't know why you're doing that to yourself. So like, I kind of didn't have too much of a choice about it. It was, you know, like it was just regular drudgery. I love working out hard, but it's funny to see that people are willingly doing that Mm -hmm. in a weird direction where it's like they're doing that for this outward appearance or how they think people should think they would look. And we were doing that to like run 10 seconds, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it was, it's just, it's an interesting dichotomy is basically what I'm saying for that. You know, I, I definitely agree. I feel like probably over the last several years, the kind of behavior that we're seeing around food and exercise as kind of the quote unquote normal or sort of the new standard, if you will, really reminds me a lot of the bodybuilding world when I was yeah. involved in that. And it's, the behaviors that we engaged in to get ready for a show, or it's a lot of, you know, similar behaviors for um, elite athletes, you know, it's like, that's kind of has become the standard by which yeah. is trying to judge themselves. <laughs> how fit am I or how healthy am I? And when I look at the behaviors that I engaged in around food and exercise and what the aftermath was with bodybuilding, um, there was very little that was actually healthy about that. And there's a ton of research out there that supports, you know, that you're actually probably doing the opposite of what you want by working out as hard as, you know, we did, or as hard as you see people working out, you know, like doing the two a days or, you know, whatever it is. And and that has kind of become the norm by which everybody is like striving to be. And I just think that I, I I just don't agree with that. I don't think that that's healthy. I don't think that that's going to work long-term for people. And I think that we're actually doing a lot more harm than we are doing for the actual health and wellness of people, um, you know, in this profession by promoting that that's kind of the lifestyle that they should be striving for. Well, it's kind of this, I remember a few, um, years back and there was a lot of different ads and stuff. And it was like, you know, basically like you're an athlete, train like an athlete, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember thinking, I'm like, man, I did that like at a high level for a long time. And, and I, sometimes I think I'm like, I wish I could transplant you into my life when I was doing that. Like, it's not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not fun, man. It's like a grind, like two a days. Imagine doing that over a Christmas break 
at midnight, Mm -hmm. at five in the morning, you know, running constantly, you know, 10 miles here, three miles there, interval training, weightlifting, like four or five hours a day. It's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And people were injured all the time and tired. And I remember as I was learning and I was getting, you know, my bachelor's, my master's, and I got my doctorate. And I really learned the science behind training well. It's training hard, but training smart. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was like, man, I mean, I loved my coach. He was a great coach, collegiate coach. But I think there was an element of like more is better mm-hmm. to the program, the training. And we were always tired, always tired. Nobody ever felt fresh or optimal. And I see that with people who are training constantly hard. And I'm like, listen, you may you may be 25 and you're doing this now. Talk to me in 15 years. Will you still be doing this at this level? What's sustainable for you? But to say that we should all train like athletes and st- maybe some portions of it, you may be aspiring to do certain things and you want to test yourself, but you have to be smart about it. And, to, and, to, and that's why we're pushing people into like, weird habits and uh, over-exercising, overreaching, orthorexia, weird nutritional aspects of things. And then you see a person, they have very poor psychosocial skills mm-hmm. with people and they don't, they have a very poor emotional compass because they've poured everything into their body. Mm-hmm. Now they look, and I, I'm very careful about that with people. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, it's refreshing, I think, to hear that coming from another fitness professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, you know, I'm starting to see a lot more of this, I think, from people that are actually educated in what they're doing in this industry. Um, you know, unfortunately, with the internet, we've definitely had kind of the rise of the influencer becoming an expert. And that is, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. I just think that, you know, while it's great that everybody can kind of have a platform, I think that sometimes as consumers, we just lose sight of actually kind of checking the person out a little bit more critically and like, you know, well, what is their background? What's their education? Especially when we're talking about somebody's health and wellness, Um, you can do long-term damage to somebody's hormonal system or, you know, like you said, the mental and the emotional stuff too. So if we're not careful, so it's just really, I think as consumers, educating ourselves a little bit uh, and then being a little bit uh, critical of where are we getting our information from and it, you know, is it valid? Is it healthy? Is it actually based on evidence or is it, you know, Hey, I got these results. Like if you do the same thing, you're going to get the results too. Abandoning food rules was so tough at first. In fact, at times I still struggle with those food rules. They were such a part of my life for so long and they're still such a big part of our culture. We hear diet talk all the time in movies and we may not even realize it. I think the saddest thing is that we think that we're being healthy by enforcing these food rules on ourselves or on our kids or our family. Though letting go of my food rules was hard in the beginning, it has brought so much freedom overall to me about food. Opening my mind to health at every size has also given me some perspective on how we talk about and think about food, health, and weight. It's also given me some freedom in a body that I'm no longer constantly fighting against. Why doesn't the consumer in your mind have a more critical 
thought process or check in deeper about somebody, let's say an influencer they see online? Uh, well, the first answer that comes to my mind is because we're lazy. You know, know, I mean, honestly, like you want to believe that it could be easy and you want to believe that if you saw somebody who had the body that you want or the body that you think that you should have, that you should be able to just do what they do and get the results. And, and honestly, I feel like that is one of the biggest lies that the fitness industry is guilty of spreading is just follow the plan, just do the thing, get the results. Well, how many people do you know that just follow the plan, do the thing and don't get the results that they think that they should be getting? Um, you know, so I think that it, it is a little bit of that laziness. It's a little bit of the magic thinking uh, and thinking that we can completely control our body and its physiology, uh, which, you know, we're learning more and more that that's maybe not necessarily the case, at least not long term. So um I think, you know, we want it to be easy and it's not necessarily easy to do the internal work to get to know yourself. It's not necessarily easy to do some of the research on your own because that's the other thing. Like we have access to so much information. It it can be a little bit overwhelming to kind of sift through that and filter through it, especially if you don't really know a whole lot about it to begin with. You don't know what's good and what's bad information. I I have a theory that I think the amount of information is very similar to this might be a poor analogy, but I I always think about it as like it's like a a menu at a restaurant that's like 20 pages long. And it paralyzes people's decision-making process. They go, I'll just default to what I normally like to eat. Mm-hmm. There's just too many choices out there. And I think that while we have more ed- more information at the tip of our fingers, we are increasingly paralyzed by the amount of information mm-hmm. that's out there. So then we just go, well, I landed on this influencer's page. We'll just do that <laughs> you know, type of thing. And it's, it's just this lack of critical thinking. And I think interesting enough, um, one of my guests, Dwayne Wimmer, has been in the business 30 plus years, really influential, I would say in a scientific way in the business. You know, he's seen it from way back to now is we've kind of made fitness entertainment now. Mm-hmm. We have this entertainment, the increase or the re- evolution of making it entertaining has created a weird, I think, false element of what actually is involved in being well on many levels. You know? Yeah. The thing that you're referring to with the too many choices is decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, I mean, how many choices are you having to make all day long anyway by what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Yada, yada, yada. And then you're given all of these choices when it comes to the best diet or the best way to lose weight and keep it off or the best, you know, new workout program for six pack abs or whatever it is. And you're seeing that over and over and over again. And so I think you're absolutely right. We just kind of default to what's comfortable. We default to what we know, even if what is comfortable and what we know isn't ultimately helping us. And so, you know, I think that that's one of the best ways that we can help people is by helping them sift through the information, but first to be able to do that, to really filter that, you have to know yourself. You have to know 
like what is really important to you and why do you actually want the goals that you want? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a feeling that you want that you think having a specific body is going to give you. And so how do we start to cultivate those feelings now? What are your values? What are your priorities? I mean, do you want to be eating something different than the rest of your family at the dinner table? I did that for years. And finally, I was just like, this is like actually hindering my experience of being present with my family when I'm over here eating zoodles and I actually just want the spaghetti, you know, or whatever. And so um, I think, you know, anyway, just kind of helping people get in touch with what's really important to them and then helping them, like, don't tell them what they should and shouldn't be eating or how they should and shouldn't be working out, but really coming alongside them and helping them uncover eating in a way that works for them, that works for their life, and that does support their values and their priorities and the the deeper why behind their goals, you know, and the same with their fitness. Um, and then building in habits around that. I mean, when we can make something a habit, we don't have to think about it as often. And that in and of itself will help eliminate that decision fatigue. What do you think is the um, kind of this deep down desire kind of kicking back to comparison or comparisonitis, this deep down desire to look like someone else potentially? Well, I think that culturally we've been conditioned to think that there's a right way to look. And if you fit mm. within that right way, then you're going to have all the things that you need to make you happy. You know, you're going to get the career, you're going to land the husband or the wife, you're going to have, you know, the perfect family life and the yada, yada, yada. But that's not true. I mean, it, we, I think we've kind of evolved to move away from that kind of thinking when we're talking about like monetary success. Um, you know, now you see so many people talking about success in a different way and I'm defining it for myself and this is what success means to me. And I don't think that we've quite moved into that same sort of mindset around physical appearance yet. And so I think we're still trying to achieve success based on what somebody once said that we needed to look like in order to have that, you know, so-called success. Why do you think that we've crossed maybe that line in financial aspects of things, but it's still taking this amount of time in the physical body appearance. Hmm. I don't know that I have a good answer for why other than we just haven't caught up yet. I think we're getting there. Um, and I think that the more that we can have conversations really kind of digging deep about, you know, well, why do you want to lose the weight or why do you want to do this? You know, cause it's like, what if you had somebody who needed to, you know, quote unquote, needed to lose like 20 pounds or whatever based on their BMI, but they, and you know, they totally changed their lifestyle, totally changed what they were doing and maybe only lost five pounds. I mean, to me, it's like they're, they've actually, I mean, they've actually taken some pretty big strides in their health, even though it's not necessarily reflected on the scale. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the first ways that we can start to move away from that is by defining health and wellness without really looking at weight. To me, that's more of a symptom, not necessarily the problem. Um, 
And so I, I just think, I, I guess we haven't evolved yet to be thinking about redefining success in this physical standpoint, um, other than what somebody looks like or what their weight is. Bingo. I actually had so funny. You're saying these things and I'm like, I just, I I've had these conversations like very recently about this. And I recently had someone on and we discussed our, mainly our conversation on is, was operational definition, definitions of what things are in health and wellness. And we started when I'll ask you this, you know, it was basically when somebody goes, I want to get healthy. Like, I just want to be healthier. And then questioning, like, what does that actually mean Mm -hmm. to you? In your mind, what does that mean? For me or? Yeah. uh, Well, when I think of I want to be healthier, to me, I want to be more balanced. I I want it to feel easy. I want it to actually feel like a lifestyle. And when you think about living an unhealthy lifestyle, it doesn't feel very hard. Because it's just habits, you know, and granted, it's because you're getting the reward, so to speak, up front, right? Like if you sit down and you have a glass of wine in front of the TV or whatever, like you're getting to experience kind of that short term reward up front. And every once in a while, sitting down in front of the TV with a glass of wine is no big deal. But if it becomes three or four glasses of wine a night and four hours in front of the TV every night, Like you can see pretty quickly how that's going to compound into kind of that unhealthy lifestyle pretty fast. But at the same time, like it still feels easy. And my big thing is we have to figure out how do we make a healthy lifestyle feel easy? And so for me, I want to be balanced. I want it to feel easy. I want it to feel just as easy as it would be for me to live an unhealthy lifestyle. Um, And I want it to be well-balanced. I want it to encompass my emotional health, my mental health, and my physical health, which frankly has very little to do with how I look or how much body fat that I have. Um, As long as I'm taking the daily steps that I know for myself, I need to be doing to feel my best inside. Why is weight loss become such a, if you will, kind of the face of health and wellness for many people? Um. I, I honestly, I think it's marketing. I think it's business. Unfortunately, just like when we look at our food industry, it's not really about food. It's not really about um, making sure that people are getting what they need from their food. The food industry is about making money. And I think the same thing of the health and wellness industry as well. And I think it's important to note that, you know, probably within the last decade or so, there's actually been more of a push away from weight loss, uh, being, uh, uh, weight loss being kind of the primary driver, they've shifted their marketing efforts more towards kind of the wellness diet. So, you know, it's, it's the juicing and it's the, you know, whatever. So, um, they're just trying to market dieting to a whole new generation. Um, you you know, it's gone from like diet as we traditionally knew it from a weight loss standpoint to the point that you brought up a few minutes ago of, well, I'm just doing it to be healthy. I'm just doing it for my wellness. And frankly, like we've just bought into the marketing ploy of the wellness diet. Yeah, I actually totally agree. I was at a conference having this exact conversation with a pretty high 
like executive uh, in a large hotel chain that is offering wellness. And I said, can you explain to me what wellness means and what you're doing? Like, like, what is it? And they had a very difficult time explaining it. And I said, it sounds to me, it's just like another buzzword Mm -hmm. to me. How do you, like, in my educational uh, journey, I learned more, you know, specific operational definitions of wellness and what that encompasses. It says, but it sounds like in business, we're throwing it out just like another catchphrase. So people goes, I'm well, I'm, I'm living well. And without actually challenging people and say, what does that actually mean to you? Or is it just like you're saying a word because it's a popular word to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have kind of moved away from using the term wellness and I more prefer the word well-being um, just because when you look at it from a definition standpoint, you know, well-being really does look at the different domains of health and it's looking at, okay, how are we going to judge your health? at, you know, from these different domains of like mental health, emotional health, relational health, physical health, financial health, spiritual health. Um, It's all of those different components that really end up making somebody healthy or not. It's not just what you look like. It's not just what you eat or how, you know, many calories you burned or what you weigh or anything like that. It's, it's looking at, because you could have somebody that looks healthy on paper or looks healthy in their body, (laughs) but they're sacrificing, like you mentioned, relational health or emotional health to achieve that. So I would argue that person is really not all that healthy at all. I would too. And actually, I this is one of the strangest things about fellow health and wellness, fitness, exercise professionals, whatever you want to call it is, I, I see a lot of extremely what you would call very physically looking fit people and eat well, whatever that means to them. And then they have horrendous sleep habits, like trash sleep habits, three hours a night, four hours a night. And I'm like, you know, it's nobody, it's like, nobody knows this about you. Mm-hmm. Like you look a certain way, but like, you're really, you're like trashing, you may look a certain way, but you're really trashing your body. You know, it's like, you know, this isn't just about you, you know, getting gains right? or you having this amazing approach to food. Like there's so many other aspects to what you're doing. What's your psychosocial dynamic with family and friends? You know, your, your emotional compass with people. Are you more, are you a conscientious person for that? What's your environmental sense of wellness? Like you may be very good at one or two things potentially, and then be garbage at all the rest of them. Does that mean you're well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the world will look at you and go, that's wellness. That's fitness. I think we need to challenge that and say, listen, let's look at the total overall thing with uh, this person and stop looking at it just at how they look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Uh, and I, I am even thinking about, I watched a short clip on a huge celebrity right now um, who, again, he has like an amazing physique, looks a very certain way. And it was kind of, you know, walking through like some of his training, Mm -hmm. physical training. And, you know, it was like how he ate throughout the week. And then the weekends would come. And this person is literally like eating multiple whole pizzas. So it's the very definition of of 
the binge eating disorder of restrict throughout the week and then binge on the weekend. But because this person looks a certain way, we see that as normal, healthy behavior, right? It's like, oh, I'm so disciplined. I'm so whatever. But then to get the gains, so to speak, you have your massive cheat days or cheat weekends. And I think that goes right in line with what you were saying about somebody eating well and exercising, but then having horrible sleep habits. It's like, it's not just doing one or two things well that makes you healthy. It's really looking through like a, an objective and a critical lens at all of your behaviors and how are they working synergistically together? Because I think if there's a break in the chain, whether it's your sleep habits or, you know, you're, you're going through kind of that binge and restrict cycle, but you're having, you know, the, the uh, culturally acceptable cheat day or cheat meal, Um, it's looking at the mentality that's driving that. And I would say that there's a break in the system and you're not really as healthy as you think. Yeah. I, I'm hopeful that we'll start looking at the whole person a little bit more. And just the weird thing I think for me is like, I learned about this a long time ago, like 20 plus years ago. And I'm like, why don't we do this? Like, this is not new information, (laughs) you know, like, but maybe it is to a lot of people. I just we we I just worry about somebody who tells me they're very healthy, but then they have very poor personal relationships with other people. I'm like, no. So you you think you're healthy? <laughs> like we're not addressing the whole entirety of the person for that. But I wanted to pivot on kind of you know you're talking about the non diet lifestyle and take me behind the curtains a little bit about kind of what are some of the challenges you have when you're working with people and kind of their preconceived notions of food when you start working with them? Well, I think it's basically everything that we've, we've talked about. It's, it does take some time to get people outside of looking at weight, uh, as you know, the indicator for success or of their health, um, or weight loss. It takes a lot of kind of reprogramming and practicing really a lot of just unlearning, behaviors around food. Because again, like we've discussed so often on this show today, is that what people perceive as being healthy, when you actually take a step back and you look at the motive and the heart and the intention that's driving it, um, it's unhealthy. I mean, you could have two people eating a salad and and have very different experiences with that food. Uh, You know, if one person is doing it because they think that, you know, oh, I I was really bad yesterday and I ate, you know, too many carbs. And so now I'm going to make up for it by eating a salad and, you know, doing an extra workout today. That person is going to experience and respond very differently to that salad versus somebody who's like, hey, you know, I'm having a salad today because it sounds good because, you know, I know that this is something that my body's been craving and it wants. So, it's just, it's unlearning a lot of the beliefs and the mindsets that we've been programmed with since we were born (laughs) and just the (laughs) continual messaging. And um, I think too, just really moving people into this idea that it's not like a 12 week program. I mean, I may be be selling you, you know, a 30 day, whatever, or a six week or 12 week, but you have to understand that it's going to take longer than that time frame. It's it's going to be a continual journey. It's going to be a forever thing that you're practicing, that you're kind of keeping, you keep coming back to and you get a little bit better every time. 
Um, and that's a, a different way of thinking about it too, because people are used to like a six week transformation or a 30 day boot camp drop 12 pounds or something like that. Um, so, you know, I think the biggest uh, obstacle is just really getting people to kind of reframe their expectations, uh, actually just letting go of the expectations, uh, focusing more on the journey and the process and kind of releasing the outcome. I think again, we speak we speak a very similar language, language, extremely similar. I've had so many instances in my career of talking to people and having them come to terms with the expectation of what things are and are not. And for many people, my experiences, they observe, especially exercise, which is my realm, they observe it as a cliff, a point of a destination and say, you know, I'm going to reach this point. Like you say, kind of the 90 day thing. And you see in the marketing, you'll see like a infomercial or something like try this program for 90 days, you know, this exercise program, this workout. And I always said, you know, why do you think that there should be an end point to this? Mm-hmm. You know, and like you like all of a sudden I'm done, <laughs> you know, like I'm good. I'm finished, man. We did the goal and we're done. And I said that the real hard part is recognizing that it's never done. Right. It's a, it's a continual point that leads to another point and more points. And it's, it goes on forever. And I think sometimes the concept of forever within your lifetime is very difficult for humans to uh, accept. Well, I mean, it's definitely not as sexy to market a, no. Can <laughs> a you imagine that? program that's going to take you a year or that's going to be like the next 20 years of your life. Um, so I definitely think that, you know, you do kind of have to meet people with where they're at. And I think that's where it's kind of, it can be helpful to say like, Hey, just, you know, keep in mind, this is forever. Like, this is something that we want, you're going to want to do always. Um, and that's kind of goes back to building it into a lifestyle, but then also I think reminding your clients to just take it one day at a time, right? Like just take it one day at a time. Don't worry about the fact that you have to do this forever. Just worry about, are you, you know, that you're doing it today, that you're committed to doing it today. And then tomorrow we reset and we start over. It's kind of funny though. Like we are okay with certain things being like really long-term processes or that this is going to take 20, 30 years. When we look at like our health and wellness, we hate looking at it that way. Mm-hmm. It's so weird, the mindset that we have built about one thing versus another. You know, I'd love to see that commercial where somebody was like, hey, you know, you ready for the forever workout? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> that shift that we start to make in the industry. This is it until you're dead, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine that? Actually, to someone like me, I'd be like, okay, sure, you know, but it'd be rough on a lot of people to be like, no, I don't think so. I, I can't even think about what I'm eating for lunch today, <laughs> you know? Which is part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's amazing. And then I think about, especially I was drawn to what, you know, is the non-diet lifestyle thing. And you must have some interesting opinions about all these different diets and things that keep coming around. And now I feel like we're in the, uh, 
the ketogenic plant-based carnivore mm-hmm. trifecta at this point. Any Which thoughts? Is just on the Adkins diet recycled yeah. <laughs> or something like that. So <laughs> that seems to be like the whole the thing now, you know? Yeah. Well, this, I mean, there's a saying that there's nothing new under the sun. And so I think, again, you know, it's just kind of looking at things through sort of a critical lens. And if you tried Adkins back in the 90s or whenever it was popular and it didn't work for you long term, what makes you think that keto is going to be any different? Yeah. Why do these things keep coming around? What's this insatiable need to keep bringing these different types of things around or creating these things? I think honestly, it kind of, it just comes back to people want something that even though like it is very hard to follow a diet forever, um, it's easy in the sense that you don't have to think about coming up with your own plan, right? It's like, if I can just do, if I can just conform to what this is telling me to do, I don't have to worry about actually transforming myself from the inside out. Whereas the, the, the non-diet lifestyle approach is quite the opposite. It's transforming yourself from the inside out. And that takes a lot more work because it takes a lot more introspection and you getting to know yourself and kind of taking ownership of your well-being. Whereas I think that diets sell kind of the other thing where it's like, just follow the plan, just do the thing and you'll get the results. But we know from research that that model doesn't work. So true. I mean, it's, oh man, how do we know this stuff all the time and we still keep falling into it? You know, it's the strangest things. It's much like the yearly New Year's resolution thing. You know, it's like humans fall into it. Every single year. It's not like they're like, yeah, in the year 2025, this stopped, this behavior. It just keeps going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, It's really strange to me, actually. Yeah. Well, I think deep down inside as humans, we have that inherent desire to continually be growing. Um, but it's scary because in order to grow, in order to really change, you have to let go of things. And that is, that's hard. That's uncomfortable. Even if where you're at right now in your life isn't comfortable, isn't pleasing, or doesn't make you happy, or doesn't allow you to thrive, it still is familiar. And so a lot of times we end up clinging to what's familiar, even if it's not serving us. So true. Very true. Alicia, um, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, A lot of great insight. Um, You seem like a very easy person to talk to. I think I knew that before we got on air when we talked before. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you, Darian, for having me. It was a pleasure. Awesome. I will be in touch with you. I can't wait. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.